you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing with all the usual caveats of course with you as always i am your ever so humble and you know mostly peaceful host tim tap committee alive from historic roan county tennessee and glad to be back live with you uh been an uphill battle for the better part of a month with one thing after another and of course none of you guys care about that you're either sad I'm back or or happy I'm back. And speaking of happy that someone is back, very happy to see you in the chat room already. Bigfoot has joined us. Been missing you. Been back for a little bit. I've been missing you in the chat room, sir. Glad to have you back along for the ride. Bigfoot, of course, is a blogger extraordinaire. And uh, I don't care if you don't believe me because all you have to do is go visit bigfootsplace.blogspot.com and you'll see for yourself. Don't have to take my word for it. We've also got Chief hanging out with us in the chat room as well. Chief is the host of a great program in its own right. It is called Simple Facts of Life. And if you are so inclined to check it out, and if you haven't already, shame on you. Uh, but if you're prepared to, or maybe just by chance this is the first time you've heard me mention it, meaning that this is probably the first time you've been uh, visited the show, uh, then you can go to blogtalkradio.com. On that landing page, that home page, you'll see a search bar at the top, and you can put in QMC USN. That'll take you straight away, but if you're driving around because maybe you're listening to this show on one of those great terrestrial radio stations across the country that rebroadcast this show, 
maybe you're driving around and you're hearing this and you're like, ah, well, um, I'll have to check that out later. And then it gets to be later, and then you're thinking, what, what was that? Now, you can, of course, go track down the podcast version of the show on a multitude of great platforms that the show can be found on and listen once again. Or you can just put in simple facts of life into that search bar for blogtalkradio.com, and uh, you'll scroll down a little bit, but you'll find it. You'll know it when you see it. You can listen to the plethora of fantastic archived episodes, or you can choose to join him live on Tuesdays. He gets started about 6 p.m. Eastern. You, of course, can adjust your time zone accordingly. Also, just sneaking in just a second or two ago, uh, well, I was just starting to get going about Chief. We've got the crazy Cajun. Uh, Cajun, of course, fantastic guy. He did some production work for this show for a little while. Maybe if things uh, work out in a certain way, I might be able to con him into returning to that role. <laughs> but currently, he's doing a lot of production work for uh, Ron Edwards over at the Ron Edwards American Experience as they're broadcasting on to MojoVivo.com. Which, by the way, if you're not checking that out, again, shame on you. All right, there's uh, lots of things going on today. Hopefully I can manipulate the flow of the show a little better than normally when I'm having some techie issues, which, of course, I am having some techie issues. I just I was running some diagnostics, and it took a little longer than usual to get the diagnostics gone through. And Of course, there's a Windows update that wants to happen, and I'm having to try to fight it off with everything that uh, is within my technological capability, but – with all that, going to try and maintain the flow. I've got two different guests scheduled today, two very important topics, and hopefully uh, we will be able to get both guests on. Uh, I had a, a little bit of an issue on Friday night's broadcast getting both guests. First guest wasn't a problem, although strangely enough, wasn't able to call them. Thankfully, uh, he called me, had the backup number, and uh, worked out quite nicely. Uh, and in the meanwhile, uh, we do have Dr. Bruce Hartman, who was scheduled to be that second guest, that I am trying to get rescheduled. Uh, in fact, spent a lot of time today trying to, to see if we couldn't work that out. Uh, some type of weird techie thing. I don't know if it was on his end or on my end, uh, given my track record, probably on my end. But uh, I left a voicemail trying to get a hold of uh, Dr. Uh, Hartman, and uh, he evidently – Never had his phone ring, nor did he get the voicemail. Uh, that leads me to wonder exactly what the extent of that techie issue was, uh, and if it really was on my part. Uh, I certainly could believe, though, uh, that I may have had some kind of ongoing thing with the switchboard here where it didn't show up like it should have on his end, and then – while I could hear the voicemail, maybe it didn't uh, – maybe the audio didn't go out like it should. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be the first time something really weird has happened uh, on the switchboard here, especially in the past because on occasions I still will occasionally get uh, in the earphones. Uh, <laughs> I'll get to hear other shows, and it will just kind of bleed in. It's like, where is that coming from? I'm connected to mine, and then I could hear – Dialogue from another show, and usually 
<laughs> it doesn't show up in the audio stream that you guys get to hear, but it but does make it very difficult to concentrate on what I'm trying to do because I, I'm hearing sometimes a, a fairly interesting conversation, sometimes not so much. But uh, you know, it's just weird things happen. But the point is, we're working on it, and uh, with a little bit of luck, maybe we'll be able to have him uh, back on by this Friday. That is my goal. My just fingers crossed kind of thing. Because one of the things we were going to talk about was this targeting of the young, and it's become the targeting of the very young uh, by the left uh, as being demonstrated by such fantastic things as the efforts to try to cancel. Pepe Le Pew and Speedy Gonzalez and Dumbo and the Jungle Book. And I'm still not real sure what the deal with the Jungle Book happens to be. Uh, I, I'm sure there must be something that, that something to do with the depictions. I I I don't know. I probably should research that. It's hard to comment too much about it if you don't know. At any rate, uh, with all that having been said, we do have two guests on today. I've got two guests scheduled for Wednesday. Of course, we typically do the one-hour get-together with Ron on Wednesdays. And to the best of my knowledge, at this point, that is still on as usual. do have a guest scheduled uh, for the uh, second hour. And I'm very much hoping that uh, the Wednesday following that, I can uh, – Convince Chief to come on and spend some time with us in that second hour. Not not this week's Wednesday, but maybe next Wednesday. If if I can publicly uh, call him out on the show and you guys reach out to him and say, "Hey," uh, of course, maybe maybe don't do that because you'll probably tell him don't don't go on to him show. It makes you look bad. I don't know. But at any rate, uh, today, the bottom of the uh, first hour, I'm scheduled to be joined by. Retired Sergeant Mark McGrew. This will be uh, a return visit. Uh, some of you may be remember him from previous uh, visits here. He is the founder of 911 at Ease International. He's co-author of the uh, fantastic book Higher Calling to Duty. Uh, he's a 37-plus year veteran of police uh forces across the country. He's been uh, involved with hostage negotiations. He's been part of tactical stuff. He's uh, served as uh, a police representative for a long time as well. It's interesting the things he's done, and we're looking at some very sad, sad information in regards to where uh, law enforcement officers Deaths by suicide are already in this year. We'll talk some of those stats, and we'll talk about uh, some of the things that we can do and uh, the efforts of 911 at Ease International uh, in trying to push back against that. Now, at the bottom of the second hour, I am scheduled to be joined once again by Larry Clayman Esquire. Now, Larry's been on with us before as well. I, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe just the one time, uh, but uh, he, of course – uh, founded uh, Freedom Watch. He was the, one of the original founders of Judicial Watch and then left there to 
pursue a senatorial seat, which uh, did not work out. He founded Freedom Watch uh, at the end of that. He still heads up uh, his law firm, uh, Clayman Law Group, and he is the author of It Takes a Revolution, Forget the Scandal Industry. And, uh, of course, we have links to the books in the show description and all that. Uh, should be interesting conversations with both gentlemen. Uh, with Larry, we're going to be talking about the continuing onslaught of crisis at the southern border. Uh, should be, well, should be interesting. Uh, Larry's not exactly the kind of guy to pull punches, so <laughs> we'll we'll have those conversations and uh, – We'll see where it plays out, and if for some reason we have a technical issue that prevents us from getting together, then guess what we'll do then? At that point, we'll reschedule, and we will go again. <laughs> uh, checking back into the chat room, uh, you can have an hour on KYH for $800 a year. Whew, that's steep. Uh, that's the kind of numbers where evidently uh, programming director doesn't like you very much. <laughs> uh, da, 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 da. Power guy. Well, I can't say. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, Chief says, come on, Tim. You know that you can't uh, say jungle without sounding racist. Uh, well, maybe I can't. Uh, something to do with my East Tennessee tongue, I suppose. Not that uh, not that anyone's surprised by that. I just – I sound that way. You know, being a, a hetero, cisgender, uh, white male, what, what are my options, right? What are my options? Well, right now, option number one is still trying to get my tech to cooperate. So anyway, I suppose we should probably move on from me blathering and discuss a little something before time for the first guest. I mean it's silly to have an hour, and half of that hour is me just – well, just going on like this. Uh, again, my stalling is I'm trying to wait for my tech to start working smoothly. just isn't working so well, but here we go anyway. One of the bigger stories going around today, I'm sure you've heard, and normally I skip the better covered stories unless something about it draws my ire, unless something really just kind of makes me angry about it. Uh, that bigger story, of course, is the Washington Post little correction that they tried to make and, and move past with nobody noticing. Uh, if you have somehow managed to miss this story – has to do with a certain phone call that a certain former resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, who is often referred to as an orange man who is bad, uh, has something to do with a phone call that he had made to election officials in the state of Georgia. This was after the presidential election, but before – the runoff senatorial election that ended up putting a 50-50 split in place in the Senate, allowing for after the installation of Operation P-Pads and Knee-Pads as the new residents of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, um, allowed them to actually claim that they have control of the Senate. And considering that yeah, they kind of do… At that point, it's not a bad claim. 
It's terrible for the country. It's it's bad altogether. But at any rate, I digress. The story is that the Washington Post, of course, ran with a quoted headline quoting the then recognized, although disliked by every leftist in the world, uh, Donald Trump uh, recognized as president, having said things like find – you know, as he was directing, giving an order, find the cheating. You'll be a national hero. As it turns out, again, in case you just haven't for some reason heard this story, as it turns out, Donald Trump didn't say either of those things. As we have discovered due to a correction recently made by the Washington Post, although even the correction is suspect based on the way the headline is written. No, it didn't say, ooh, oops, we really messed up. It was, well, maybe it wasn't quite as bad as we once thought. But here's, here's the gist of the correction. They acknowledged that uh, the things that they quoted – then President Trump, as having said, he didn't say. And they offered up an explanation as to why they ran with the quotes because they had a source, an anonymous source. Now, I'm still old enough to remember when good journalism typically required a minimum of Three sources before you would really run with a blockbuster story, right? It wasn't about the race to get to the first one to report it. You wanted to be the first one to report it correctly. That used to be the standard in journalism. We want to be that guy. We want to be love the the news industry that brings forth the correct information, but we want to make sure that we're right. We want to make sure that when we tell you the story, we're not going to have to print some embarrassing correction later, especially if we're going to do that horrible, terrible, nasty thing and talk about Donald John Trump and, you know, then have to turn around and say, oh, well, you know, all those mean things we said he said, nah, he didn't really say it. Now, I, I know it's it really – for some folks, the people on the left and the, the legacy mainstream media, they're kind of acting like this isn't even a story. And a lot of the conservatives that are talking about it right now are missing the major point of the story because it, it may or may not have impacted in a significant way the rather close senatorial races in Georgia. Uh, I, I think it's – really kind of impossible to tell how much. I think more people paid more attention to the previous phone call that everybody talked about. <laughs> Chief in the chat room, sources. We don't need no stinking sources. The real story that, that should have everyone concerned is that because the editorial staff at the Washington Post was a firm – Believer firmly in the camp of orange man bad, firmly of the belief that 
Donald J. Trump is the kicker of puppies and eater of babies, that he is the climate arsonist they claimed him to be because he's a bad guy. They wanted to believe it. They had a story that provided them confirmation bias, so they didn't uphold the one time – and I say one time because I, I can't point to anybody that's still holding themselves to these standards. But the one-time journalistic standards of needing three sources with at least one of them being willing to go on the record. You know, The, the bigger the story, the bigger the allegation… The more important it was to have that. You wanted at least one source on the record so you could begin to tell the story, and at least two other separate sources, even if they had to stay anonymous, who would have every good reason to know what they were talking about and that you could trust as a source. That used to be the standards. That used to be what was expected, but now… Get a group of folks running a media outlet that's just like, well, this is a story we want to tell. It fits real nicely. We have this one anonymous source. Go. And they run with the story. They hadn't even heard the phone conversation themselves. Uh, they claim to have heard parts of it. Mysteriously, parts that didn't have those quotes. See, they were in the middle of trying to build the case that Donald Trump was trying to pressure and force Georgia state election officials to flip the results. Now, he was understandably wanting them to take a long, hard look at the shenanigans that took place and to try and correct an error if they could find the evidence. Now, again, Donald J. Trump an imprecise communicator, a phrase you've heard me assign to him multiple times because it's fairly accurate description. He says things in a way that his fans really, really enjoy hearing, but sometimes he says them in a way that also can be a little ambiguous, can leave some room for interpretation, can be taken in a fashion that it wasn't intended. Now, once you familiarize yourself with Trump speak, you get to know pretty quickly when he's saying something for effect, when he's just trying to troll, and he loved trolling. Now, he wasn't always playing that three-dimensional, and I'm still trying to figure out where people got four-dimensional chess from, uh, a whole new level I've never heard of. But uh, he, he wasn't always playing three-dimensional chess as the way some people would like to uh, – to claim that he was, but all in all, he was a guy who said that was on his mind. He liked to say a lot of things. Sometimes he said things before he'd really thought about them, but at the end, it really comes down to a matter of how precise of a communicator he was. And so he would say things where he intended to send the signal that you guys need to go do your actual job because he was convinced if they had done their job, they would find the things that he believed had occurred, and in this case, I think he's very well justified in believing that in Georgia and in a few other locations around the country, there were some shenanigans that took place, some shenanigans at the level that could have changed the outcome in those states. And given how close this election was, at that point, if all of those states happened to flip in the opposite direction, then it would have changed the outcome of the general election. You didn't have to have huge widespread cheating. You didn't have to have huge widespread voter fraud. All you had to have is 
a few things here and there at just the right places, which it seems to have happened. Now, all that's water under the bridge, right? There's, there's no reason to continue to rehash that, right? Okay, fair enough. But how about this? How about the fact that these people still claim the mantle of journalist, but they fail to meet the standard? I mean, there's a reason why I don't claim to be a journalist, and I don't. In fact, uh, I was on uh, one time visiting George Sensor over in his show, and uh, he asked me about uh, things that transpire and what I think, uh, as far as what my responsibilities are as a journalist. And you know, I I appreciated the fact that he looked at me that way, and, and I tend to think as George is actually being a journalist. I think he steps up uh, to that level quite often. Uh, so I kind of took it as a, as a compliment, but I made the point that I don't see myself as a journalist. I'm at best a commentator. You know, I'm somebody. I see some stuff, and I let you know I'm coming to you with a bias. I, I clearly admit it. So that way, if for some reason I manage to overlook a key piece of information, maybe my bias blinders are, are not letting me see. Then you know why. So hopefully in those cases, you can forgive me. But if I do come across something that I legitimately got wrong, I do try to go back and correct it, and I don't try to, to hide behind this notion. But the thing is I have spent a lot of time developing what I consider to be trusted sources before I talk about any story on this show, and I've developed – these sources over time because I have watched and read and have learned how to cut through their bias as well. And I do tend to follow and lean very heavily and very strongly on certain generally right-leaning news outlets that are not considered to be on par with the mainstream legacies. But they do a lot of good work, and they make effort to avoid falling too far into a biased position. That's part of the reason why I moved away from Breitbart, I, and I've been saying this for a while. I should start going back because it's my understanding that they fixed it, but they're going into the uh, campaign of Trump for president. Breitbart went and jumped the shark. They went very heavily biased to a point where they started making editorial decisions to avoid even talking about stories that maybe would make Trump look bad. Now, most of them didn't, but that's the opposite of journalism, and I really think Andrew Breitbart, had he still been alive at that time, would have been very upset about how they took that. That doesn't mean there's not a lot of great journalists working over at Breitbart right now and that they haven't done a lot better since the uh, midway point of Trump's term. In fact, I've seen a lot of good stuff over there, but I don't go to them as often as I used to, probably, certainly not as much as I should. But I do look at places like the Daily Wire and the Blaze, and I, I'm looking at not the personalities, what they're doing over there, but what the journalists that work there for, because they work hard at both bringing up truth and avoiding that bias. I have yet to see them go out and make an assertion or an accusation without having sources multiple and a willingness to have somebody on the record. Why can we not maintain that type of journalistic standard? That's all I want to know. 
Am I wrong for that? All right, you guys stay where I put. I'm going to go ahead and do a Dan Wass uh, Second Amendment uh, PSA and going to try and get a hold of the good sergeant in the meanwhile. So you guys stay where you're at. I'll be right back on the other side of this. It's not so unbelievable that governments would want to disarm their citizens, but that citizens would beg to be disarmed by their government is a much scarier thought. We've seen government control most recently in Venezuela, where citizens are left to defend themselves against a violent government by throwing rocks, because not too long ago, they were disarmed by that very government under the guise of gun safety. Gun control laws like the ones in Venezuela are exactly what our political left in America would like to see here. As a mother, I am terrified. I have four children in our public school system. And if they knew that their teachers were potentially carrying a gun... They want to be disarmed by our government so badly that they protest in the streets, demanding that government take away their rights. All for that assault weapons ban, to keep these weapons of war out of the hands of civilians who do not need them. All for the prohibition of high-capacity magazines, because no hunter will ever need access to a magazine that can kill 17 in mere minutes. How does this happen? Well, it's complicated, but it starts with very powerful propaganda targeted at people who can't think. People who have been taught to believe that freedom is dangerous. People who can't think for themselves are targeted from many directions. Schools, movies, news sources, and even their own friends and family. And once they're on board with the anti-gun fear campaign, they continue to perpetuate the irrational gun fear. Well, they have to justify their position, right? Also, yeah. don't need home protection. Um, oh. You don't. You don't need guns for home protection. You don't want to bring more guns into a situation. The answer to solving violence is not more violence. Gun fear is cultivated purely for the purpose of gun control support. But the people who spread it don't always know that they've been misled. They think they're doing a good thing. These same people are taught to hate gun owners. They're taught that gun owners are recklessly and intentionally putting everyone in danger. They're taught that gun owners are the enemy, and more government control will protect them from the enemy. Why does anybody need an assault rifle if they're not going to war? I don't think there's any reason to have 33 bullets in a killing machine that you can take into a place like a school. Watch these anti-gun activist groups in action, and you can't help but ask yourself if they have any clue what the real results would be if they were successful. So what's the real problem here? Is it really guns, or is this about something else? I mean, do guns cause violence? How do we let the gun grabbers hijack the conversation and direct the focus to firearms when we all know we really should be talking about what causes human violence? You see, if we were to look at what causes human violence in this country, we'd be forced to look at gang violence, open borders, sanctuary cities, rampant pharmaceutical drug use, and gun-free zones, all things that the anti-gun political left supports. So to the anti-gunners, why in the world would you want your government to take away your rights? The Second Amendment is not a privilege. It's your right. I'm Dan Wass. To check out my webcast, go to LoadedMike.com. To check out my book series, go to GoodGunBadGuy.net. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that, of course, is Dan Watson. Please, please spend a little time heading over and check out the uh, all the good work he's doing over there. It's fantastic. Glad to have his uh, 
his PSAs as part of the broadcast. Uh, we will also sneak in before we are uh, all said and done a Edwards Notebook and a uh, Songs and Stories for Soldiers Veterans Tip of the Day. But before we do that, I do have on the line uh, retired Sergeant Mike McGrew. He's a 31-year career veteran and law enforcement officer. He's a former major crimes detective. He's a former hostage negotiator. He's a former president of the Police Officers Association. He's been dedicated to serving the community and his fellow police officers. And as a result, he's also the author of A Higher Call to Duty. And he's the founder, as we discussed in this previous visit, of 911 at Ease International. Uh, Sergeant McGrew, first of all, thank you so very much for joining us this, this evening. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me again. All right. Well, you know, we were having a very serious conversation last time you were here, and sadly, in that time frame, uh, the situation has only gotten more serious. So uh, definitely wanted to make sure that the public in general is aware we were talking about, of course, the high rate of police officer suicides. Uh, there's been a, a huge turn since – well, I, I hate pointing at specific times and uh, pointing fingers at anybody uh, by naming names because, unfortunately, that's what people really tend to believe you're doing is you're saying, oh, it's all this guy's fault. Uh, clearly it isn't, but we did see a huge uptick in public sentiment going extremely negative at police officers in general under the Barack Obama uh, administrations, and we have seen a lot of police officers since that time feel like no matter what they do or how they try to go about doing their jobs, they no longer have the support of the communities they're serving and in lots of occasions uh, the support of their superiors and of elected officials who are responsible for trying to make sure police officers are properly equipped and uh, are able to do the jobs as they need, properly budgeted. And this has led to a level of despair that we're really not seeing much of an improvement. In fact, so far, uh, I was looking at the numbers uh, out here, uh, and the, or the the numbers that I saw were up till about the beginning of this month. And we've already got 31 uh, suicides this year that have been acknowledged as such. And you know, there's always a certain lag in these numbers as well. So hopefully, it's not higher than that. But I say that because it could be. Uh, last year, 177 officer suicides. Uh, what can we do to try and help show some support? I, I, I really, this, this really should be bothering everybody. But yeah, I, I don't even know where to, how to properly frame the question here. Obviously, it's something you're working on. So, what's the starting point? How, how do we start making a dent in this? Well, I came on the uh, police department about 35 years ago. I retired four years ago after a 31-year career. And when I came on the department, uh, the culture that was set up for first responders and police officers was a you're, it's a tough job. You're getting a paycheck, but go out there and do your best and, and just suck it up. And so that was something that, um, that you did, uh, and, and I think the first responders go out and they do a very good job. At, at what they do for 31 years. I worked with people of uh, amazing courage and character. I saw 
people do just um, amazing things where they went out and protected all members of their community. But one of the things that happens from the culture that was there is, is that uh, there's no place to, to lay the burdens down. So when uh, when you're out doing an investigation, and, and it, it can be a death investigation or a homicide investigation, a, a sex crime investigation, these are things that take a piece of uh, that first responder's heart. It, it, you know, speaking from that position where I, I, I did serve half my career as a major crimes detective and detective sergeant, I knew the impact that uh, that the job was having on me, but also I saw the impact that it was having on the, the fellow officers and, and people that I was working with. And uh, I, I got to a place in, in my career where I shouldered a lot, um, but there was a, a time where, where things just kind of broke down for me. And, and I'm not alone. Uh, I lost a couple marriages uh, in the first 20 years of my career. And then my youngest son got diagnosed with bone cancer when he was 12 years old. And uh, that was something that really turned my world upside down. Uh, he battled it for about six years. And then uh, when he was 18, he ended up uh, committing suicide because the, uh, the cancer had come back three times. And, and that poor guy had just been through so much. But it was a time I knew that I needed to reach out. And, and there were a lot of distance in his for reaching out and getting help prior to that time. But I was just at this place where I really wasn't able to, um, to even move because I, I had taken the biggest hit that I've ever taken. And when I uh, went in, faith was a big thing for me that, you know, I, I found the Lord and um, I got a lot of strength through, through God. But I also needed to have uh, counseling uh, services and, and so when I uh, did reach out to get counseling, I didn't um, I didn't bring just my grief. I brought 20 years of police work, and I think that that was overwhelming, uh, and it's very overwhelming for a lot of clinicians that are out there. So uh, through my journey, I, I was able to identify the the um, the disincentives that first responders had to, to reach out and get help, and a lot of that was um, the stigma that. Um, that maybe you weren't strong enough to, to be in the job. It was uh, also this fear of, of maybe losing your job. If you said, hey, taking that dead child out of his mother's arms yesterday really messed me up, boss, that, that could get you in a position where they take your badge, your gun, set you down and say, well, we'll see if you're, if you're fit for this profession. And so uh, that, that was the culture. And I knew uh, that most people were not going to reach out. They were not going to get help. So we started the uh, 911 Addies International program, and it started about seven years ago here in Santa Barbara. And, and it, uh, it's a program where uh, we raise money through the, uh, this nonprofit, uh, through the community, and then we provide a helpline that a first responder can call. And once they make that call, it's very confidential. It's not associated with any employee assistance programs or cities or counties. It's, it's, it's a safe place for first responders to call. Um, they're immediately put in with a culturally competent clinician that's able to uh, address the issues that first responders have to address. And we help their families, too, because there's a secondary trauma that first responders bring home. And I, I think when it comes to, um, to suicide, uh, you know, it, it was explained to me that there's three things that, that happen uh, during the suicide. And, and one is a sense of worthlessness. Or, or no purpose. Uh, the second one is, is a, a sense of isolation where the person is isolated. And that's what you're seeing. 
right now. You're seeing that nationally as the mainstream media attacks this profession. They want to isolate uh, and, and shame a group of uh, people who are very special people. Um, but it's an attack of shame, which isn't about what you did personally. It's about who you are. And so that starts isolation. And then the third part is uh, self-preservation that, that um, the person would have to get through a being able to take their own life and, and get past that self-preservation. Well, most first responders, they already, that's a check they already wrote when they, uh, when they came on the department, uh, you know, that it's a job that uh, you may not, may not come home at night. Um, you, uh, it's a job where you may have to lay your life down for somebody else. And uh, so that's, that's, that part of the, that equation is gone now. And, and so now you're looking at, you know, the isolation that's happening. And, and these are the things that increase the, the risk of first responders who are out there, especially law enforcement right now. When they turn the television on and they see um, the mainstream media trying to use a isolated incident to paint the entire profession in a bad light. And, and, and those things are hurtful. It's, it's something that, um, you know, I, I, Probably it probably sells papers or gets viewers or whatever it may be. I, I don't know why people even tune into that, but uh, but it's it's something that is having an effect on those who are out there serving and, and and just doing a really great job. The things that I saw, you know, I know that there's tens of thousands of just heroic um, and brave and courageous and empathetic acts that are happening throughout the country every single day. But that's not what the mainstream media wants to put on the television or in their articles. It's, it's something that, you know, they're trying to paint uh, this noble profession as something that that's, um, that's bad. And it's not, um, there's, there's, like I said, there's isolated incidents that happen and, and those things are taken care of. We, we address that stuff, um, quickly. And, uh, the, the people that I worked with and, and, uh, they, they understood the, the trust that needs to go behind the badge. And, and uh, you know, it hurts when you see something that is out of line with that. Uh, and I think we all grieve when we see that. But uh, you have to understand that, that there's just so much good that's happening. And and, um, and I think just people getting behind this program, the 911 Addies International, it, it's, a, it's a big message. It's a message that it's okay to go in and deal with trauma. It's okay to go, to go in and, and get help for something that's really an injury. Um, but it's also uh, an opportunity for the community to get behind those who are serving and, and, and really help them out. And when first responders get this help and they realize, wow, you know, I went through this incident, I went through that incident, or I went through just layers and layers and layers of trauma, and, and here the community is here. They care about me, and, and they care about my family. And, and, and so it's just it's been really an amazing program and, and it's had a big impact on the first responders because they know that's community support and and we know that there's you know there's 10 percent that's always out there that doesn't like the cops that doesn't like law enforcement and that's usually who you hear from on the mainstream media but but there's 90 percent of the folks that are out there they're good people and you know we don't always get to see that because we don't <laughs> we don't get called to good situations we get called to difficult situations so it's it's right. been um yeah Uh, been, yeah, uh, I just yeah. was just going to add. I mean, that's that's the case. We we ask more from first responders, particularly 
uh, police officers than we have any right to reasonably expect because we want you to show up, uh, be professional, and never make a mistake and be perfect and, and take any amount of abuse. You, you guys get to see even good people at their worst, uh, and just for – Anybody to not understand how much this weighs on a person, uh, clearly there's been no effort made whatsoever to consider what the day-to-day responsibilities are and what uh, the average beat cop all the way up to the uh, special crimes detectives is seeing every day and having to take home with them and and the, the toll that takes on the family members and just – all of that emotional damage that you just can't turn off no matter how much you would like to, and and then to to turn around and give no consideration and no acknowledgement of people doing their best or even just their basic humanity, it's an unfair situation. It is a very special calling uh, to do the job at all, and it shows a very special – uh, among that special group type of mentality for anybody who can stay at it for more than 10 years. So, again, I, I greatly appreciate all of the uh, time and effort and energy that you put into not only serving your communities but also the community of first responders through your efforts because it, it is something that's important. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. It's It's been um, it's been an amazing season in my life to be able to, to – just um, do my part and, and just lifting this profession up. And, and, and our mission statement is to keep our first responders strong. Uh, you know, they're, they're very good. They're very good in the fight. Um, it's the fight after the fight that that's the difficult part. It's when you come home, it's, it's when you're, you know, you're out of a chaotic situation. You're just trying to process it. So, uh, you know, anybody listening right now that is a first responder that, these things speak to you. I just, I just want them to know that they're not alone and that there is help. And uh, we have a website. It's 911aei.org, and that's for 911 Eddies International. And if you go to that website, there's also a, there's an eight-minute video that's on there, and it has the testimonies of first responders that have been through the program, and, and it just shows the benefits um, of the program. But, you know, one of my prayers is that we, we just change the conversation around uh, trauma with first responders. And, and you know, you, you wouldn't look at your partner with a broken arm and, and just look at him. You know, you'd, you'd say, hey, you got a broken arm. Let's go get that fixed. And it's the same thing that happens with um, with first responders and, and the people that work in this profession. we got to take care of each other. We know we trust each other with, with our lives. Um it, but we also know uh, when when things aren't right and when we can get help. So uh, there's no um, – it, it's not a sign of weakness. It, it's a sign of strength to, to make sure that we're strong, we're operating for our communities, but also for our families when we come home. And uh, there, there's just so much that's lost by those who who give so much to their communities, and, and this program is a way to, to help strengthen them and to give back to them. Yeah. 
All right. Well, again, uh, Sergeant McGrath, it's so, so very great to get to talk to you again. And I hope that we can send a few more folks towards uh, 911 at Ease International and, and get uh, kind of support for the people out there that are needing it and uh, hopefully some more community support as well because it's certainly worthwhile. We need our first responders strong, not just police officers, but all first responders because uh, we do expect a lot out of these folks and uh, very often and don't give enough thought about it until we're in a bad situation. So thank you once again uh, for uh, stopping by. Uh, please, one more time, share the website. And while you're at it, if you want to give a plug uh, to uh, the book or uh, share any uh, social media handles, if you still are inviting people to follow you or anything like that, uh, one more time, throw that out there as well. Sure, sure. The program is 911 Eddie's International, and the website is 911aei.org. And then uh, the, the book is called The Higher Call to Duty, and you can find that on Amazon. We also have a website that's sergeantmikemcgrew.com. So that's S G T Mike McGrew, M C G R E W.com, that you can find the book. And uh, I'm really grateful to be on your show, and thank you for all that you do. All right. Well, uh, again, uh, that's. Uh, pales in comparison to what you've done, sir, and uh, hopefully we can get together sometime in the future and talk about your overall career, because something tells me there's a lot of great stories there to talk about, too. Uh, but in the meanwhile, you keep up all the the great hard work. Uh, it, it is appreciated, sir. I, I assure you of that. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is a retired Sergeant Mark McGrew. Uh, there are links in the show description at BTR uh, for both a higher call to duty uh, that will take you to Amazon and, uh, of course, also a link to 911 at Ease International if you want to check that out, and I highly recommend that you do. Uh, in the meanwhile, I promise that I would uh, sneak in an Edwards notebook and a Songs and Stories for Soldiers veteran tip of the day. I'd better do that while I still have time in this hour because this first hour is almost over. I know some of you guys are saying yay, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, so today where you're at, I will be back on the other side of this very brief break. The presidential election could look quite different in 2024 and beyond if Democrats and rhinos have their way. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards on today's page from the Edwards Notebook. House Democrats have totally given up governing on behalf of we the people and simply desire to perpetually rule over us via cheating and scandals. So now they are in full support of the scandalous H.R. 1 bill or the so-called For the People Act. Among numerous horrendous aspects of H.R. 1 would do away with voter identification nationwide, allow for anyone, including illegal border crossers, to vote. The GOP also speculated that H.R. 1 is a strategic political move to grant Washington, D.C. statehood and ensure two more Democrat seats for the Democrats. Based upon my observations, it appears the Democrats are prepared to do away with constitutional restraints on government and pave the way for leftist-style official one-party rule with no tolerance for healthy debate or dissent. A sure recipe for sickening disaster. May God rescue us from this madness. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out theronedwards.com. 
Ron Edwards, the new voice of America. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. Hello, this is Dan Perkins with your Songs and Stories for Soldiers, Veterans, Tip of the Day. Did you know that the unemployment rate for homeless veterans was twice the national average? And without proper shoes, it's hard to get a job? Here's your Veterans Tip of the Day. People from all over the country helped us with our annual Songs and Stories for Soldiers, Shoes and Socks for Homeless Veterans. There was a time this summer where we believed that probably it wouldn't be successful because of the pandemic, but decided to go ahead and do it anyway. We reached out in the local community and on the various radio shows that I'm on asked for their support. In a little over three weeks, we received 400 pairs of shoes and over a thousand pairs of socks for homeless veterans so they can go out and look for a job and have a decent pair of shoes to wear. We at Songs and Stories for Soldiers and all the 400 plus soldiers who will receive these shoes and socks say thank you for your generosity. This has been your Songs and Stories for Soldiers Veterans Tip of the Day. All right, I told you I'd be on the other side of that very brief break, and hey, here I am once again keeping that promise. <laughs> yeah, I could keep your excitement to a minimum, guys. I, I can I can hear you. Uh... <laughs> okay, so anyway, we're quickly nearing the end of the first hour, and again, it is a very important conversation to have uh, when it comes to our first responders. We have a a pace currently this year set to break last year's numbers, and last year's number for first responder suicides was one of the highest on record. And it all stems from the fact that too many people are being made to feel as if they're not making a difference. Now, we do tend to focus quite often, far too often, in fact, on the people who end up with a badge who have no business wearing one. It makes for great movies in Hollywood, and it makes for a strong leading story. I mean, if it bleeds, it leads, right? And so there's this huge focus point on when one of these folks do something horribly wrong, even if it's just a mistake. But part of the reason why this makes for great fiction is because it is quite rare. When you look at the total number of police officers and first responders in general, quite rare when you see them just go in and do something horrific instead of doing the job to the best of their ability, which is far greater than any effort I could make. So I'm not about to criticize <laughs> chief in the chat room said if you can hear the excitement. Uh, you have more voices in your head than I do. Uh, yes, Chief, thank you for pointing that out uh, once again. All right, anyway, since this show, for the purposes of the rebroadcast on uh, terrestrial radio stations, great stations like KYAH 540 AM, Utah Stock Authority, just to name one, uh, typically play the show in one-hour segments, uh, we'll have to reset. So for some of you, I'm about to say goodbye for now, and – as such, let me say to you right now, please don't take my word for any of it, but don't take the other guy's word for it either. If you're listening over at MSNBC, please you need to be prepared to put in some effort and most importantly to use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. In the meanwhile, stay safe, stay healthy, and you know, be smart, even if it goes against your nature. If you're here live right now, like Bigfoot and Chief are, uh, don't go anywhere. Hour number two starts right after this. For the rest of you, hopefully I'll see you at the same place tomorrow. 
I'm out. Seems like a thousand years since we had real fears, but the old ones won't forget. These broken levee walls had a few close calls, but they haven't fallen yet. And you know the rain's coming, the rain's coming, all your days and all your nights. It brings a storm on you When the sun beats down And it bakes the ground And you watch the rich land die Such a vicious drought Even hopes in doubt But there are no clouds in the sky But you know the rain When you feel the first drop fall, when it kisses your skin, the storm will begin to bring with it promise of change. When you
broadcast of Tapping to the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. With you as always, I am your ever so humble and, you know, mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, coming live from historic Rome County, Tennessee, and glad to be with you live. Uh, definitely happy to have folks hanging out with me in the chat room as well. I've got blogger extraordinaire Bigfoot hanging out with us. Check out his stuff over at bigfootsplace.blogspot.com. I've got a tremendous talk show host, uh, a man who has a fantastic way of weaving information and and tales and history together to get you to one basic point, and that is the title of the show, Simple Facts of Life. Uh, yes, definitely worth your time. Check it out. You can find him at blogtalkradio.com. Uh, go to the search bar, and you can Find him at, if you want to take the shortcut, QMCUSN. And if for some reason you can't remember that, just look for Simple Facts of Life. You'll have to scroll down a little once you get to the search, but you'll recognize it when you see it. Uh, tremendous archive of great shows. Plus, he goes live on Tuesdays, most Tuesdays. It usually starts about 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You, of course, are capable of adjusting to your time zone accordingly, or at least I have every bit of faith in you, even though right now with the recent daylight savings time change, uh, we may be having some difficulty with our time zones, as some of us may be. Uh, I know I felt it more today than I have the previous few, which is normally the case. It's like, where did my hour of sleep go? Anyway, let's uh, let's jump into things. We're uh, scheduled to be joined at the bottom of this hour by the author of It Takes a Revolution, Forget the Scandal Industry, the lead attorney at Clayman's Law Group. He is Larry Clayman Esquire. He is the founder of Freedom Watch, and he is scheduled to join us to talk about the situation at the southern border. And ordinarily, I take this time, since this is indeed the second hour of a two-hour live broadcast, saying this for the benefit of those of you who may be listening to the show being rebroadcast on radio. 
Uh, the time of the live broadcast is March 16th. It is 2021, and it's a few brief moments after 8 p.m. Eastern. So if you, for some reason, missed the first hour, you can tap uh, track down the Tap into the Truth podcast on most platforms that have podcasts. Or you can just visit tapintothetruth.com. That's T-A-P-P, intothetruth.com, and uh, find a way to listen to the show there. Go back, check out the first hour. Had a great conversation with Sergeant Mark McGrew. All right. I got two stories, though. Ordinarily, I would uh, try to go ahead and uh, give some shout-outs to a few other folks like Ann Ubellis and Don Smith and Rod Eccles and Ron Edwards and uh, a ton of other folks. Uh, the the Global Patriot Radio Network, uh, the English Defense League, and uh, you know Josh Bernstein, and some some other folks that are out there uh, telling truth and tearing down myths and lies and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not going to spend much time doing that because I want to try and sneak in two stories before I call the guest. Now, the first one uh, comes from the fact that as of today, time of the live broadcast, that again being Tuesday, uh, March 16th, there's a group of dissident Roman Catholic priests that are out there being rebels. They're leading a disobedience effort against the Vatican, and they said that they will continue to bless same-sex couples in a direct act against the orders of the Catholic Church. Uh, in case you missed it, uh, the Catholic Church this past Monday released a statement saying that they cannot bless same-sex marriages. Anyone who's read the Bible knows this to be the case. It's, it's drawn the attention of such great modern thinkers as Don Lemon over at CNN, who, much like the Israelites as they were waiting for Moses to come down from on high, got kind of nervous that it was taking so long, and they're like, oh my gosh, we, we, we need a golden calf. <laughs> a lot like those folks, it's within human nature to want to ignore what God is and make God into our own image and make God a, a forgiving to our personal sins kind of God uh, to the point that, well, uh, the God I believe in doesn't even think that uh, this is a sin. Uh, God's not about judging people and being vengeant. Really? The, the, the whole entirety of the Old Testament you missed there, did you, buddy? Uh, anyway, we had this, and if you're going to adhere to the tenets of a faith, then you have to adhere to the tenets of that faith. And homosexuality as a sin within the Bible. So if you're a part of essentially any Christian denomination, yet you, you kind of have to see it as a sin. You're not really a practicing, devout member of that Christian denomination, whatever denomination it may be, if you think differently than that. And if you're You've created a, a denomination that you claim to be an offshoot of Christianity that doesn't acknowledge parts of the Bible, then you may not actually be a Christian denomination. Uh, you, you may be a cult that's Christian adjacent. I'm just throwing that out there for clarification. Joe Biden is supposed to be this very devout Catholic, yet – 
I've not seen very much evidence that the man has been particularly devout, especially when he came out with a comment and disagreed with the pope about this. He he did that. But rest assured, this dissident group of Roman Catholic priests, they're riding to the rescue. Uh, whose rescue? I'm not exactly certain. They're certainly not saving any souls, and I think they're running the very large risk of becoming excommunicated. And I'm not a big fan of excommunication per se, uh, and I, I don't really have a, uh, a dog in the fight when it comes to the Catholic Church, if you will. But I kind of think based on my understanding of what being a priest within the Catholic Church is supposed to be, that if you don't follow at least the Bible, I can see where you might have a philosophical disagreement with the pope, but you're not supposed to publicly air that. But if you're actually in defiance of the Bible, I think maybe excommunication might be the appropriate path. And I'm not calling for it. I'm just saying it might be the right thing to do. I would be surprised if we don't see this. At any rate, like I mentioned, earlier this week the Vatican announced that priests are not allowed to bless same-sex unions, uh, saying that the blessings carried out in this way would not be considered valid because clearly the church cannot bless a sin. Now, Joseph Carl over at the Daily Wire uh, reported on the Vatican's declaration back this past Monday as the Vatican's orthodoxy office, uh, the Con Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the CDF, uh, responded to an inquiry about whether Catholic clergy are allowed to bless same-sex unions. They came out with this pronouncement. Evidently, previous to this event, the Catholic Church has had some priests doing it. And there's never been an official proclamation come down from uh, on high, if you will. I, that seems a rather inapropos metaphor considering who we're talking about. Uh, you know, anyway, in its answer, the CDF said, quote, the presence in such relationships of positive elements – which are in themselves to be valued and appreciated, cannot justify these relationships and render them legitimate objects of an ecclesiastical blessing. Since the positive elements exist within the context of a union not ordered to the Creator's plan, God does not and cannot bless sin. He blesses sinful man so that he may recognize that he is part of his plan of love and allow himself to be changed by him. Translation, they're trying to walk that tightrope of the, the discussion that we often have when it comes to trying to force people to bake a cake. There's a big difference between denying a service because someone happens to be gay or denying their participation in a celebration of what they're doing. As a baker, if I'm baking cupcakes or a regular cake and you walk in and you want to decorate it yourself and make it your wedding cake, hey, whatever, dude. But as a baker, if you want to come in and have me make a wedding cake for this, I've got a right to say, I don't think so, Scooter. 
In fact, I've got a right to say not going to happen because while you seem like a perfectly lovely person, you do. You really do. I like you. You're you're fun. You're interesting, whatever. Personally, I just can't do that. It crosses a line for me, and I have to stand on this principle. You can't force me to do something specifically for you in a free country, especially one that has religious freedom. Now, again, going back to the Daily Wire reports, looking at it, uh, they said, quote, The church has previously welcomed gay people into its fold but does not recognize their unions as marriages. Instead, Catholic doctrine teaches that marriage is a union between a man and a woman. <gasps> Shocker! We've never heard that before, have we? Now, Reuters reported that in some nations, ministers and parishioners – had started to bless same-sex unions instead of marriage. Some have spoken out in favor of bishops taking action to institutionalize de facto such blessings. But conservatives – there's that scary word for the folks on the left, isn't it? Conservatives in the Roman Catholic Church have expressed concern over such acts. And do you know why? Do you know why those of you on the left who don't understand faith at all – and I know there's several of you out there. And I'm not saying that everybody on the left doesn't understand faith, but I know there's a lot of you that don't. Okay? The reason they've expressed concern is because it flies in the face of the doctrine. It's literally saying this 2,000-year-plus institution must now have all of its fundamental founding principles dissolved because it might hurt your feelings from five minutes ago. That's what it's saying. Now, if you don't like how the institution is going, you try to reform the institution. And reforms mean one thing, and it means trying to improve or make better. Now, Church, by its very definition, particularly a Christian-based faith church, doesn't exist to placate to your feelings. It exists to try to save your soul. That's the mission statement. And you'd be surprised to find out that that's actually the mission statement of all kinds of religious doctrines. It doesn't just fall into the case of uh, Christianity. Surprise, surprise. That's their purpose. They want to try to save your soul. Now, how they're going to go about it? Different in lots of ways. But there are certain behaviors and there are certain conducts that are laid out, and these are laid out as having been wrong. We call them sin. And a good practitioner of the faith recognizes their own humanity. They realize we're not perfect. We're all going to, to slip across that line and engage in some type of sinful behavior. Uh, some of us don't do anything but engage in sinful type behaviors. We often find those people suffering from all kinds of self-destructive tendencies. These higher thoughts that take you out of the <clears> – air <throat> quotes for radio. We know how well that works. Sinful behaviors often uh, replace them with behaviors that are better for your advancement in this world. But you know, let's throw all that away. It doesn't matter. This dissident group, this – Rebels in the Roman Catholic Church, they said in a statement, quote, 
we members of the Parish Priest Initiative are deeply appalled by the new Roman decree, except it's not a new decree, is it? They've made a follow-up to the original decree that was first put out in the Bible. So it's not a new decree. It's just newly decreed from the Pope or from immediately under. Anyway, they're appalled by this new Roman decree that seeks to prohibit the blessings of same-sex loving couples. This is a relapse into times that we had hoped to have overcome with Pope Francis. Meaning, we know we had the first woke pope, but dadgummit if he's just not woke enough. Yeah, that's just a little translation. <laughs> they continued by saying in this statement, we will, in solidarity with so many, not reject any loving couple in the future who ask to celebrate God's blessings, which they experience every day, also in a worship service. Now, again, nobody's saying they can't come to church. That's not what this edict says. Nobody's saying that they can't be blessed individually by God. Nobody's even saying that for whatever reason, their union may not be part of God's plan. That's not being said here. What is being said is that the Bible clearly defines marriage as being between a man and a woman. It is there in every version, in every interpretation. And I'm sorry, but simply acknowledging the gospel for what it says, and if you believe it is the gospel, then there's not a lot of room for interpretation on this one. You can't modernize the ideology. You can modernize how you deliver it. You can take it from standing out uh, by a, a river, preaching at a small group of people to building a uh, nice little tabernacle and build tabernacle, tabernacle <laughs> enunciation being important, and uh, having a, a full music department and having a youth. Uh, ministry and, and all these bells and whistles. You can do all that. You can take it to radio. You can take it to television. You can modernize. You can have full-on uh, transmissions of audio and video over the internet worldwide. No matter how you modernize in that fashion, that's fine. You're reaching a larger audience. But when you go away from what the message is supposed to be, when you stop preaching, ministering, and believing the doctrines, then you're not really part of that phase anymore. So guys, either suck it up and realize that the book you've dedicated your entire life to, as parishioners and priests, is saying something different than what you want to hear, and maybe you're the one that's wrong, or just get out. Stop trying to drag down something that you're supposed to have built your entire life on building up and using as the rock to which you are trying to save souls. Now, this little initiative, by the way, was founded all the way back in 2006 by nine priests, but the claims that it has since grown to around 350 members. I don't know that there's an official roll call. 
I don't know that there's a newsletter going out where we can verify that his membership has gotten that large. But uh, it also reports to have more than 3,000 lay supporters and is led by Father Helmut Schuler. So there you go. Is this a surprise? Eh, probably not. And eh, The group's distraction is most likely not a surprise to anybody, especially to those who are familiar with its views. It has reportedly been at odds with the Vatican in the past. The group is in favor of women becoming ordained and also of allowing priests to get married. It's also reportedly said that it will go against the rules of the church by allowing Protestants and remarried divorced Catholics to take communion. Uh, bottom line is these are a bunch of people claiming to be Catholic priests that are anything but. But hey, that's all right. Now, how much time do I have to get to the second story? Not a lot, but it kind of flows right into the conversation I'm going to have with uh, my next scheduled guest. So let's go ahead and get started. We're getting reports on the 16th of March, that's today, time of the live broadcast. Don't know for sure exactly when you're going to be hearing the rebroadcast or if you're listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening, by the way, but uh, just so you know, in case this sounds a little dated to you, it seems that Biden's little border crisis uh, seems that it's way worse than we even knew. According to a new report that came out, the number of unaccompanied children in custody is somewhere in the neighborhood of 300% higher than we've been previously told. Now, Democrats and barely their Beijing guy, uh, Joe Biden, he's got a little thing going on that uh, some people are referring to as a challenge. And by some people, I mean uh, people that work for him and don't want to admit how bad it is and how quickly it got really, really bad once the uh, – Green light was given to open the borders, which is what everybody south of the Mexican border thought when they heard that Joe Biden was being installed as the next recognized president. Well, that crisis continues to spiral rapidly out of control, and it's getting worse and worse. And there's a new reporting today, again, time of the live broadcast, March, 8, uh, March 16th, this new report. It's indicating that the number of unaccompanied children being held in detention facilities is more than 300% higher than previously known. CBS News, CBS News host Nora O'Donnell said that Biden's border crisis was growing larger and more dire by the day. CBS, Nora O'Donnell, not exactly fans of the Trumpster. Not exactly somebody that wants to call out the Biden administration. Not exactly somebody that wants to say, hey, uh, Operation uh, P-Pads and E-Pads is doing awesome. That's what they want to say, except they don't want to call them what I do. They want to act like Joe Biden's the greatest president ever because you barely even know he's there. I guess if that's your standard, maybe he's doing all right, but – Based on watching my country fall apart in rather short order, I think maybe we should be seeing a little more of the old guy. Anyway, Nora O'Donnell said the border crisis is growing larger and more dire by the day. Continued by saying, tonight we have got the stunning new numbers. 
Sources tell CBS News more than 13,000 migrant children who entered the country without their parents are now in U.S. custody. The government says even more adults are being turned back every day. So in a tweet… O'Donnell noted that 13,000 unaccompanied minors, which is significantly higher than the roughly 4,200 that were reported in U.S. custody at the start of the week, 4,200 compared to 13,000, are being held in U.S. custody for an average of 120 hours, far longer than the 72 hours allowed by law. Way to preach it, Nora. Continue on. Migrant children are being forced to sleep on gym mats with foil sheets and go for days without showering as the Border Patrol struggles to handle thousands of young Central Americans who are surging across the southwestern border, some of them as young as a year old. That's from a report from the New York Times. They also reported many of the children interviewed by lawyers in recent days said that they have not been allowed outdoors for days on end, confined to an overcrowded tent. Aww. We have an ongoing issue, an ongoing crisis on the border. Minneapolis, leave me alone, chief. <laughs> Giving me uh, grief over enunciation. Uh, we have an ongoing crisis at the border. We're being lied to, lied to, flat out misinformed. We've been lied to uh, by these people about how important they really think COVID testing and COVID vaccinations are. We've been lied to by the moving forward of everything they've done. How they're trying to push, what their ultimate goal, what their ultimate agendas are, and they want the crisis on the border to exacerbate. You've got the leftist president of Mexico calling out Joe Biden by name. You now are beginning to see legacy mainstream media folks that are recognizing Hey, maybe it isn't quite so humane to these folks after all if we're not going to treat them any better than what we're doing. You see, we can't just turn these kids loose to no one. We can't just turn them over to people that we're not certain are actually their parents. We know, we know with certainty that when Trump put his foot down at the border and we were separating kids at that point, that close to a third of those children were traveling with people that had no biological connection to them at all. They were being used to help traffic people across. Throw on top of that the completely and totally unaccompanied minors. Such, ah, I'm just an eight-year-old kid up from Guatemala, went for a stroll one day, decided to go all the way through Mexico, and hey, here I am, southern border, United States. Saw a big group of people said, I want to see what that uh, circus is about. Yeah, because that happens. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't live in Guatemala. Maybe it does happen. It just doesn't seem like it should, though, does it? Anyway... Let's uh, take a little break with uh, Dan Wass, and on the other side, 
I will see what I can do about uh, getting in touch with my guest for the second hour. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Let's talk about guns purely from a self-defense perspective. How many people are there in America? Well, if you said just over 300 million, you're correct. It's closer to 325 million. Now, let me ask you this. How many acts of violence are there per year in America? Well, if you said just over 1 million, you're correct. It's approximately 1.2 to 1.3 million. So if there are just over 300 million people in America and just over 1 million acts of violence occurring in America every year, what are your chances of being the victim of one of those attacks? Well, if you said 1 in 300, you're correct. I don't know about you, but I don't like those odds. I know your odds might change depending on where you live, but if you live in an area with less crime, wouldn't that make someone else's odds go up? I mean, the number of people in America didn't change, and the number of violent attacks per year didn't change. Some of the highest crime rates in America are in Democrat-run cities where there are the strictest and most restrictive gun laws in the country, putting good people at risk because they can't defend themselves. The anti-gun left and anti-freedom groups like the Everytown Gun Grabbers continue to paint a dishonest picture of guns in America by telling you that guns cause violence. This is why they push the term gun violence. It's to help people who aren't paying attention believe that if we were to remove guns, the violence would magically go away. The truth is, not having a gun is more likely to make you a victim of violence. Two and a half million times per year in America, guns are used to save lives. This doesn't necessarily mean good guys killing bad guys. This most often means just the mere presence of a gun deters a bad guy. And by the way, 46% of those defensive gun uses are by women. The more guns are restricted, the more people are put at risk. The people who try to scare you and convince you that guns are the problem ignore the fact that we're all potential for being a 1 in 300 statistic. The people who ignore this are the same people who will purchase a lottery ticket with a 1 in 20 million chance of winning. They ignore the facts when pushing their agenda, and they know the odds that they're creating are dangerous. Human violence in America is not an argument for more gun restrictions. It's an argument for more guns in the hands of good people. So regardless of how desperate the anti-gun left is to disarm Americans, we've found a simple and effective way to defend yourself from violent attacks, rapes, carjackings, or shootings. Shoot back. Anti-gun hypocrisy has run rampant because of a dishonest media and an anti-gun political party that's willing to sacrifice our great American values, put good people at risk, and destroy cities with unnecessary violence just so they can gain political power. It's time we understand their strategy so we can defeat them. Our founding fathers saw these tyrants coming over 200 years away. That's why the Second Amendment was written. I'm Dan Watts. To check out my webcast, go to LoadedMike.com. To check out my book series, go to GoodGunBadGuy.net. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, apologize for that little bit of dead air there. Uh, actually, 
unfortunately, we're not going to be able to have our scheduled guest on. Uh, we were spending some time trying to uh, decide whether or not he was going to go ahead and join us, but uh, Larry is having uh, an emergency kind of situation that popped up. Uh, so hopefully we can try and work it out to work him in tomorrow. So we'll kind of uh, double up on guests tomorrow if we can. We'll see if that works out. Uh, if not, maybe we can sneak him in later in the week or next week. But, but we'll definitely uh, get that squared away. In the meanwhile, I'm going to leave uh, the the link. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. <clears throat> Sorry, I, I was just really into the conversation with him a moment ago. Uh, we're going to leave the links up to Freedom Watch and the links up to It Takes a Revolution in the show description for anybody who wants to check it out anyway, just in case we aren't able to work out uh, a, a reschedule in the next little bit. But uh, we'll leave it there, and you can still check it out. And we will try to get him rescheduled quickly, but he'll definitely be on again at some point in the future. So with that having been said, uh, we've got other things that we can talk about. But it is amazing to me, though, before I switch gears, that we have this situation where you can literally get away with having 300% more unaccompanied minors being detained than you were claiming, and you thought you could get away with it. I mean, it's almost like an an Andrew Cuomo kind of a belief that, hey, I, I don't have to be answerable to anybody. It's just, wow, I don't know. Just really boggles my mind. So uh, at any rate, we, we will get uh, Mr. Clement back on at some point, and we will move forward uh, with the show with a different – and that, of course, is a little thing I came across just a little while ago. Uh, you guys are familiar with Georgetown, right? Well, turns out in this headline, Georgetown donates a million dollars to racialreparations.org. Hmm. Now, not meaning to pick on the Catholics that much. We did talk about those rebel priests claiming to be Catholic priests that are going against the edicts from the church. Uh, but uh, Georgetown University, in case you're not that familiar with them, happens to be a Catholic uh, university. Uh, they're a religious university and founded by the Catholic Church. Uh, Georgetown University contributed a million dollars, a million dollars in funding to a Catholic order that pledged to raise money for racial reparations. So again, today, time of the live broadcast, that being March 16th, the New York Times announced that a Catholic order pledged to raise $100 million for the descendants of slaves once owned by Georgetown University via a new foundation. In an email obtained by uh, multiple news outlets, uh, looks like the first one to report on this was the Daily Wire again. Uh, Mentioned them a few times today. They are one of those trusted sources I was talking about back in the first hour. Uh, Georgetown's president announced that the school contributed $1 million to support the planning and assistance necessary to create the framework and the structure for the foundation. Now, I'm going to pump the brakes a little bit right there. Number one, where did the school get this money from? 
was this money that is coming from an endowment? Is it money that's coming from a grant? Is this money coming from the revenues raised by the tuitions of the students attending? Now, you may say that this isn't particularly important, but uh, I kind of think it is because if I'm a student at Georgetown. Maybe I don't want my tuition money going to fund a bunch of things outside of the purview of the university. If I'm the parent of a student at the university and I'm the one paying that tuition, maybe I don't want any of my dollars going to that. If it's coming from an endowment of some kind, well, what's the source of the endowment? Is it coming from a grant? Well, if it's coming from a grant, well, that makes it taxpayer money. Now, suddenly, since I am a taxpaying American citizen, now I've got to worry about my dollars being wasted. And yes, it is being wasted because, again, I said, let's pump the brakes. I was asking that first question, but then I asked the first question to come back around to this question. They contributed a million dollars to support the planning and assistance necessary to create the framework and the structure for the foundation, which means basically they're giving up a million bucks so some folks can sit around and talk about it. Not talk about getting the reparations where they need to go. No, no, no. Talk about how exactly they're going to create the foundation that then later is going to take yet that $100 million they were talking about and give it out in reparations. Uh, but a very focused group. Uh, Descendants of slaves that were owned by the university. Thinking in the current woke culture, wouldn't it just be more expedient and, and far more economical if they just shut Georgetown down? I mean, wouldn't that be the truly woke thing? To, we're supposed to cancel everybody, right? That, that's what they keep telling us. I mean, I've done been canceled so many times that I'm back. I've been <laughs> – you ever heard about being so far behind that it looks like you're ahead? Well, I've been canceled so many times that I, I'm bleeding the pack of the cancel culture now. I am the new leader. I mean, again, let me read you the words that they used so that you see that I am not exacerbating this. I'm not exaggerating it. I'm merely telling you what they said. They have contributed $1 million to, quote, support the planning and assistance necessary to create the framework and structure for the foundation. Not to the foundation itself, not for helping the foundation get started, but to pay a group of people to sit around and talk about how they're going to form the foundation as a think tank to figure out how to make a think kind of mentality that we're talking about here, only they're getting a million dollars to do. Now, the school, of course, said that it's looking forward to supporting and partnering with the foundation moving forward. Or are they actually looking forward to having more say than they should because they basically just kind of bankrolled this? I don't know, but according to a report from Tim Pierce, the Society of Jesus, a Roman Catholic order commonly known as the Jesuits, 
in partnership with the GU272 Descendants Association, has launched the Descendants Truth and Reconciliation Foundation to raise money in part for reparations for the descendants of slaves of the order once bought and sold. Now again, let's pay attention to the wording. To raise money in part for reparations. Meaning, what are they really doing? Are they once again using folks on the left as useful idiots? Are they making promises and saying one thing and then fully intend on doing the other? Guys, if you happen to be somebody who leans to the left and you hear this and all you're hearing is, yay, reparations, then you're not paying enough attention. Have you not been paying attention to, I don't know, let's say Joe Biden, who within a matter of days was dropping bombs and starting new conflicts? Who's already talking about making the first major tax increase in the country in over 20 years? It's longer than that, isn't it? Since the freaking 90s. Man. And, and also that they can pay for the next big program, the spending that they're about to start moving forward now that the $1.9 trillion of which – uh, less than nine percent, and you know, the more we dig into this bill, the more we find that less and less actually goes to direct COVID relief. Never mind the fact that the checks for a lot of folks are already out, already delivered. If you were doing direct deposit, there's a really good chance you've already got yours, and if you haven't, you probably will before the end of this week. If you're waiting for a check in your mailbox, you better be standing guard by that mailbox every day because somebody's going to be looking to take that bad boy out of there. But they're looking to raise money in part for reparations, meaning they have intentions of spending money on other things too. But let's go back to the article. The GU272 Descendants Association happens to be a nonprofit that supports the goals, objectives, and aspirations of the 272 enslaved people who were owned and sold to keep Georgetown College, now Georgetown University, open in 1838. So in an email to students, the university president, one John J. DeGoza, said that the million-dollar donation was just the beginning of the school's work to atone for its role in the slave trade. We now have the conditions in place for us to accelerate Georgetown's work on a related effort, which will further our community's engagement with descendants. You know what's another word for descendants? Is people who didn't actually go through the crap. I just just throwing that out there for consideration. Because at this point I'm feeling like somebody somewhere has wronged me enough that they ought to be sending me a million dollar check. I mean, seriously. With the Biden administration working to devalue the dollar as hard as they are, a uh, million dollars in a couple of months is probably gonna be the equivalent of a ten spot right now. I mean, come on, seriously. 
uh, let's just keep her spending the money and borrowing the money and uh, printing the more money. And there's no reason why we can't just keep doing it because America, except you can't say it like that because that's wrong. That's not America. That's a leftist utopian desire to destroy America. At any rate, back to the article. Uh, back in October of 2019, Georgetown student body passed a referendum committing the school to contribute $400,000 a year to support community-based projects that benefit the descendant community. Now, according to Georgetown student newspaper, students voted overwhelmingly to pass a semesterly fee of $27.20 per student that goes directly to GA, not GA, to GU272, which, of course, stands for Georgetown University 272. Anyway, Georgetown is the first university in the nation to establish a collegiate reconciliation fund. The university has undergone changes to scrub the school of its slave-owning past, but have they? Has it been scrubbed yet? Have you, have you prostrated yourself enough? Have you begged for forgiveness on the altar of the left to the point that you're now squeaky clean of the sin of slave owner? And, and don't get me wrong here. Okay, I, I'm not saying that owning a slave was okay. It wasn't. It shouldn't. should have never happened. The sensibilities of the time were different, but those sensibilities were wrong. But it is that very same piece of human nature that led people to try to enslave others that should lead you today to question the motives of those people that are leading your so-called movement on the left. Because here's the thing. You guys hate conservatives. You hate those guys that talk about liberty. And freedom, even though if you stop and think about it, that's really the bill of goods that you're being sold on the left, free to do whatever without consequences. So the difference is the folks on the other side say that you should be free to do whatever, but understand when you mess up, there will always be consequences. And sometimes even when you don't mess up, you're going to have to pay for somebody else's mistake. So not fair. Oh, but guess what? When life isn't fair, you don't get to hide out in a cry closet. You don't get to talk about how you've been triggered by a microaggression. you got to suck it up and move on or you fall apart. That's the way life works. You're being ill-prepared for what you're going to face once you leave school. These universities aren't making amends for sins of the past because they can't. There's no way to do it. At least the folks on the right, uh, the legitimate conservatives, the people that actually love freedom and liberty and understand that with individual liberty comes individual responsibility and individual accountability. The only thing they want from you is to either A, be left alone to do what they want to do, or B, for you to stand up on your own and be free to do what you want to do. If you cross over into the realm of criminal, then you should expect to pay a price. Let's not forget about our past. Let's not forget about our shared history. Let's remember it. Let's put it front and center. Let's make sure we understand how we got from point A to point B to point C. 
It's really hard to tell somebody never forget if they don't even know because they were never taught in the first place what it is they're not supposed to be forgetting. And oh, by the way, it makes it a heck of a lot easier to get away with the same things we're not supposed to be forgetting. The same things that if I say in a in a manner which I'm not immediately denigrating uh, Donald Trump or conservatives, that suddenly I will be banned once again from a multitude of media platforms. I can't bring up the Holocaust unless I'm saying uh, Donald Trump's policies on the southern border was a literal Holocaust. There was literal concentration camps. Then I can be hailed as a leftist hero. But if I say, hey, guys, maybe we should just learn the history of the Holocaust, and maybe we should understand that when somebody says never forget, that's what we're talking about. Well, see, now I've done went and done it. I went too far. I stepped across the line, didn't I? These universities have undergone changes to scrub the school of its slave-owning past. In 2015, the school decided to rename buildings that bore the names of two men that played significant roles in the school's slave trade. A hall named after Thomas Muldry and renamed Freedom Hall and a hall named after William McSherry was renamed Remembrance Hall. Except we're not allowed to remember the events anymore that led to the freedom, so we can't have remembrance of how we got to the freedom because everything that existed before the freedom was bad. And all bad history has to be memory-hold. It has to go away. These two men happen to play a major important role in the creation of the university. So people who did bad things are also capable of doing good things. It reminds me of my conversation back in the first hour with uh, Sergeant McGrew. These uh, first responders, particularly police officers, uh, they spend a majority of their day seeing even good people at their worst. You know, you've got people like Joy Behar talking about how Antifa isn't even real, and they're held up as a media hero. And you got somebody like me sitting here trying to tell you the fact that this is significant and that good people can still do bad things. It doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them people. That's enough to have me canceled. But that's not all the university did in its effort to scrub the school clean from its slave-owning past. Because in 2017, two other buildings were rededicated. One to Isaac, the first enslaved person listed in the school's 1838 sales document, and another to Anne-Marie uh, Craft, I believe is the pronunciation, who happened to be a black woman who established a school in Georgetown for black girls. Now, I got no problem with you wanting to rename buildings, especially if you think that it's important and perhaps more important than what you want to do. I do have a problem with virtue signaling. 
Now, if you're going to stand on this as a true virtue, then hey, go at it. But that means consistency too. That means not just licking your finger, sticking it up in the air and seeing which way the wind's blowing. Oh, wait, the the, the anti-racist so-called are uh, – they're in charge right now, so we better – yeah, yeah, we're going to go with those folks. Look, there is no legitimate reparation that a university or a government can offer today for a crime that was committed more than a century ago. There is literally no one alive today that is a victim of that crime, and of course that's when the discussion about systemic racism comes into play and the very vague and nebulous definition of what systemic racism is. Peeking back into the chat room for the first time in a bit, <laughs> Chief said that the Catholic Church owes me reparations because they headquartered in Rome, and I must have an ancestor who was a slave in the Roman Empire. And chances are he's probably right. And under that uh, mindset, uh, there's a lot of folks that uh, we probably are owed a little money to. Well, that we are owed money from, I should say, because I think I probably fall into that. But anyway, I digress. It's just the other side of this, and the left is never going to acknowledge this because they want to devalue it and belittle it as much as possible. Reparations were paid, and I'm not just talking about a mule and uh, 50 acres of land that a lot of folks didn't take the government up on. I'm talking about citizenship. Citizenship is great. Citizenship is the most precious thing. Citizenship in the United States of America is the most precious and rarest gift that exists, and so many people take it for granted today, and so many people on the left want to pretend like it's insignificant, that it doesn't matter, that it's not important, that there's no reason for us to even value it or treasure it. There is no more valuable thing on this earth. Now, once you move into the next the next life, yeah, there are things that are more valuable than that citizenship. But on this earth, being a citizen of the United States of America is unequaled, unparalleled. There is nothing that has greater value, greater merit. And there was a time. There was a time when every American citizen and every person – who wanted to come to America, they instinctively knew it. They didn't have to be told. They didn't have to be educated to that fact. They saw a land of opportunity where immigrants could come and could make a life for themselves, one that could never have happened wherever they came from. These people were wronged, people who actually – were bought and traded like a commodity, like farm equipment. They were wronged, a horrific wrong. There was no making it right. But the most valuable form of reparation that could have been made was granted in the form of American citizenship. And if you truly understood the value, if you truly treasured it like you should… You would understand that there is no amount of dollars and no amount of virtue signaling that could ever come close to matching that. But I guess it's 
too much to expect that they could get to that conclusion when they still want to believe what Georgetown University is doing right now actually is going to make a difference in someone's life other than their own because every piece of wording I saw there set it up as this is their new con job as a way of funding money back their way. We'll raise $100 million, and uh, about 100000 of that will actually go to somebody's hand or into a community project. We'll see. I, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. But uh, I've seen enough virtue signaling at this point to be highly skeptical. As well should you be. That's going to have to be it for tonight. Once again, I want to thank uh, Bigfoot and Chief for hanging out for the entirety of the show. A uh, shout-out to uh, Crazy Cajun, who was also hanging out with me as well. A special thanks to uh, the scheduled guests, even the ones that couldn't make it. We'll work on getting rescheduled. In the meanwhile, please remember, don't take my word for anything, but please, please, please don't take those other guys' word for it either. Be prepared to put in some effort, and most importantly, use your brain. If you really want to tap into the truth. In the meanwhile, stay safe, stay healthy, and, you know, guys, uh, be smart out there, even if it goes against your nature. Uh, that's it for me. I am out for now. But we'll be back Wednesday night. Good night, guys.
using both hands. 